Patients who have pain that persists long after their injuries have healed are often prescribed painkillers or told they have a psychiatric disorder causing them to feel phantom pain. But what if these patients instead had a neurological disorder that caused them to feel pain? Pain that could not be linked to any discernible nerve damage. How would a physician arrive at the diagnosis? You're listening to Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg. Joining us to discuss complex regional pain syndrome is Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Anne Louise. Thanks, Michael, very much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Let's talk about CRPS, which I've always called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Are they one and the same? I, I know there's two CRPSs. Have they been merged together yet? Well, what happened is that in 1994, the governing body, the International Association for the Study of Pain, put together a diagnostic manual for pain disorders similar to what we use in psychiatry, and they decided to rename RSD, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, to get away from the concept of reflex abnormalities, which most patients don't have, and also to lessen the emphasis on the sympathetics. So they are essentially one and the same. Complex regional pain syndrome was divided into type 1 without known nerve injury, and so that would correspond to RSD, and then type 2, where there is a known nerve injury, replaces the terminology causalgia that was invented by Weir Mitchell, one of the founding fathers of American neurology, when he took care of wounded soldiers from the Civil War and described causalgia. How does CRPS differ from just chronic pain? CRPS is a chronic pain syndrome that's linked to trauma or injury. There are rare cases in which it arises in patients who haven't had a trauma. Most of them, if it's the real thing, actually have had some kind of a focal internal injury or illness. So it's important to know that it's not just a generalized chronic pain problem, but it's pain that lingers after an injury, long after the injury is healed, and when everyone expects that the pain should be gone. Now, when we're talking about an injury, there's an article by Jerry Groupman out of the New Yorker who talked about a patient who just crossed the street and twisted her knee, stepped off of the curb the wrong way, and, and that, that caused this syndrome. I mean, so it doesn't have to be a major injury. Is that correct? We're not talking about a, necessarily an auto accident or something. Well, the most common cause overall in epidemiologic studies is bone fracture. So that is a significant injury in most patients, but very often, as you say, it's a so-called soft tissue injury in which there is no known fracture. And sometimes it's a seemingly tiny injury. One group of these patients that I'm very interested in and that I think all medical professionals need to know about are the patients who develop this syndrome after phlebotomy or blood drawing because we all assume that that tiny little needle can't really do any long-term harm. And, of course, that's true 99% of the time. But there are those very rare patients who are left with this syndrome from routine phlebotomy. Now, that's fascinating because I was also sitting here thinking, like, what about the little traumas that we do in surgery? Can that trigger that? 
Surgery and medical procedures are a very common cause of this. Where Mitchell described patients who had penetrating injuries, and of course he was looking at soldiers. So the syndrome causalgia, CRPS2, remains a major problem for veterans, but for the civilian population, their most likely source of a penetrating injury is the physician, not the battlefield. So before we get everybody panicked out there in Radioland, how common is this? Uh, now we're going to all go to our offices tomorrow and worry that we're going to get order a blood test for somebody and create this. It's very rare that patients will have a full-blown, very severe, disabling CRPS syndrome from phlebotomy or blood drawing. And the estimates are one in a million. But those estimates are almost certainly an underestimate because that's based on the patients who seek medical care and who are able to link their pain to the needle stick and whose injuries are made known to the Red Cross. The Red Cross has collected these data. But clearly it's a very rare complication. Right. Now, well, let's talk about the neurons. What type of neurons affected by CRPS and how do these neurons respond when they're damaged? So the idea that's come out of our lab work and work from other labs is that rather than being malingering or drug-seeking, this syndrome reflects damage to a specific kind of an axon that we call a small fiber. And those are the very thin diameter, unmyelinated or thinly myelinated axons that transmit pain sensation and also have a lot of control over organs and blood vessels. And it made sense to me that these neurons might be damaged in these patients because as a nerve specialist, I take care of patients who have small fiber polyneuropathies and who present with chronic distal limb pain, changes in color, temperature, sweating abnormalities, swelling. And that's exactly what we see in the CRPS patients, but only restricted to the limb that had the injury. Now, patients with this problem are very often misdiagnosed with other conditions since it can mimic other disorders. And what other diagnoses are often given besides, like, you're just nuts before reaching the correct diagnosis? Well, it's very important to make sure that the patient doesn't have some ongoing tissue injury. A classic example would be arthritis. If your knee hurts and continues to hurt, probably the most likely explanation is not neurological, but it's a conventional condition. So I only consider these neurological diagnoses in patients who've already been examined by the appropriate specialist who's been able to rule out a tissue injury as the cause for the chronic pain. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, and joining me to discuss complex regional pain syndrome is Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander, Associate Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So, Anne Louise, let, let me ask you another question. Is CRPS the same or similar to phantom limb pain? That's a great question, and the answer is unknown. It's unknown not only for CRPS, but also for the whole category of neuropathic pain syndromes. We've been able to pick up on the fact that these patients have lost neurons 
our group has found skin biopsies and counting the number of remaining neurons in the skin to be the best tool. There are other tools as well, but we know that the neurons that are dead can't be the source of the pain. So what's very unclear is how much of the pain comes from other remaining neurons that are still there, but in an abnormal environment now, versus how much of it is generated by the spinal cord and the brain because they've been deprived of their full complement of sensory input. So that would correspond to a phantom limb situation. So to translate for dermatologists and people like me, in other words, when the nerves are gone, your brain still thinks that the pain and the injury is there, and so it keeps remembering the pain and keeps producing it. You keep feeling it. Yes, we've actually suggested the term phantom skin pain for this kind of pain because, again, as you point out, it's not a phantom limb situation. The limb or the tissue is still there. But if the nerves that normally connect it to the central nervous system are gone, from the brain's perspective, it's as if it isn't there. And so you can have phantom pain in an organ that still remains. Well, I read about some fascinating work with phantom limb pain where doctors are using mirror boxes to have the patient's brain suddenly get the idea by looking in the mirrored box that the arm's not there and the symptoms can actually go away. Can you do this with CRPS? Is there any way to do it? There are a few papers. Dr. Ramachandran at UCSD has been a leader in this area. And there are some papers that suggest that some patients do get improvement from this. The idea is that by using a mirror to reflect a normal limb that can be touched and manipulated and moved, the patient watches the mirror limb in the position of the damaged limb and then the brain at least gets some visual input that that limb is there and functional. And somehow, even that visual input seems to be enough to help the brain to calm down at least somewhat and reduce the pain. What I would say that's even more important for all patients is to use a damaged, painful limb like that as much as they can. Even if they can only walk a block, they should be out walking that block at least once a day, if not more often, because that little amount of use and of stimulation and of sensation is what helps to calm the brain down and lessen pain. So we really want to retrain the brain to say, no, it's, it's actually better than you think it is, Mr. Brain. That's exactly correct. And for people who haven't responded to medications and are not getting better with rehab or with mirrors, it's worth considering neurosurgical treatments. And the one that's most generally useful actually is implanted electrical stimulators of the damaged nerves or over the spinal cord. And it's not known for certain, but it looks as if by these stimulators stimulating the axons that remain to fire and sending a continuous signal into the central nervous system, it may help to reverse some of the brain's plasticity and reassure the brain that something is still there. Well, one thing that would be the exact opposite then, because I would think like, well, okay, if you've got nerve damage and it's firing, you would want to go and cut that nerve. You precisely don't want to do that. You don't want to cut any more nerves to the area. Thank you, Michael, for bringing that up because it's an understandable thought, but in fact, many decades of experience have shown us 
that cutting the nerves to an area of neuropathic pain is ineffective in almost all cases. And in fact, it can make the situation worse. Sadly, I still do see occasional patients whose physicians have recommended or performed this. So thank you for allowing me to make the point. You're welcome. How do you test for this? And what are the, do you use the usual test for nerve damage or how do you actually make the diagnosis? The problem with these small fiber nerve damage problems is that the standard test for nerve damage, the EMG and nerve conduction studies, don't at all detect the function of small fibers. And so someone can have quite severe small fiber damage, yet completely normal EMG and nerve conduction studies. So most physicians feel that if they've sent the patient for that kind of testing and it's come back normal, well, then they've excluded nerve damage, and so perhaps the patient is inventing. But again, this kind of nerve damage does not show up on those tests. There's no one great test to recommend for these patients. And so it's still a diagnosis that needs to be made by a clinician who's knowledgeable about peripheral nerve anatomy and can map out and figure which nerve is likely to be damaged. Unfortunately, we don't have enough of those physicians to care for the patients who have this kind of problem. Well, I think the key point to be made is to physicians that they need to not necessarily think of these patients as being okay, but just having a psychological problem just because you can't find it. In other words, we always have to go back to treat the patient, don't treat the lab tests. Yes, and it's also important to try and counteract some of the nihilism about this condition that the patients see on the internet, because in fact, most patients get better quickly from this, particularly children. And a patient who does not get better and who has persistent symptoms year after year probably deserves to be reevaluated by a neurologist to look and see if something is maintaining their nerve injury. Perhaps the nerve is entrapped by scar or rubbing against bone, or perhaps the patient has a condition such as unsuspected diabetes or thyroid problems that may be preventing healing. So again, we've got to keep an optimistic perspective on this condition and encourage our patients to reach out for help that they need. I would like to thank my guest from Harvard Medical School, Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander. We've been speaking about complex regional pain syndrome. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD Online, on demand and on air. Please visit us at reachmd.com and thank you for listening.